justified their behavior was all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. I've been saved by grace. And they also had this flawed view of the human person that the body is uh, is is separate, that the body and the soul are two independent entities and one does not have any bearing on the other. So whatever you do in the body doesn't affect the, the, that immaterial, that spirit aspect of a person. And so I can do whatever I want and it has no effect on my spirit. And Paul turns that idea upside down. And you can go back, that was a couple of weeks ago, and, and listen to that. But that's the one extreme But then there's another extreme, and we picked that up last week. And the other extreme was, no, 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 no. Liberty and license is not the height of spirituality. Rigor and asceticism is the height of spirituality. If you really want to be spiritual, you will deny all of your fleshly desires. Anything that brings pleasure, cut it out. That's how you become a spiritual person. And so you've got these schisms and they're on these, these two extremes and they're split. And all of this comes as a result of this flawed understanding about God's good creation and the human body. And so that's where we've been. And as we um, prepare to, to look forward rem- into our text today, remember something that I... I think I instructed last week, but it holds true this week, and it'll probably hold true for the next couple weeks, and that is Paul is addressing very specific issues. I'm sorry, Paul is addressing a very specific question. Paul's instruction in chapter 7 is not a systematic and comprehensive treatise on marriage. It is true, it is helpful, there are applications we can draw, but Paul is not going to answer every one of our questions in this particular passage of text about marriage, divorce, singleness, sexuality, and all of those things. He is addressing some very specific concerns. That will hold true today. So let's look ahead and see what Paul wants to address today as we look forward. Paul is going to, in our text today, Paul is going to address a number of different issues, and the issues are going to be singleness, divorce, and marriage with an unbeliever. So, a lot of stuff. I was trying to find what would be kind of the overarching principle of this, and I don't know. Singleness, divorce, and marriage with an unbeliever. And really kind of at the heart of all of this is the question that we began to touch on last week, and that is, is celibacy the pinnacle of spiritual life? Is celibacy the pinnacle of one's spiritual life? Because what was happening, and we talked about this last week in the in the issue of marriage, where, where married couples were denying themselves of um, sexual intimacy for the purpose they are saying, no, deny all pleasure, anything that's good, deny it. And so Paul's like going, uh, no, celibacy and is not the, um, or refraining from intimacy, it has no spiritual advantage. Y'all ought to get together. So we're going to continue on with that theme. But today, with that question, is celibacy the, the pinnacle of spiritual life? We're going to see, um, some of the ramifications that Paul is going to address. For instance, if indeed celibacy is the pinnacle of the spiritual life, Shouldn't I abstain in marriage? We saw that last week. Or how about this? Maybe I should just get a divorce so that um, I can, me and my wife or whatever, I'm not tempted and we can remain, I'll remain celibate. And, And Paul's going to address some of those issues. So that's kind of where, well, it's not, I always say that kind of, but it's not kind of where we've been, it's where we've been. And it's where we're going to go. So we're going to address the issue of Paul's understanding of singleness, the idea of uh, divorce, and also marriage uh, with an unbeliever. All right, so with that, 
Hopefully that's somewhat clear. Let's go ahead and follow along with me as we read in God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. Listen to the inerrant word of God. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, as I, as I myself am. But each of you has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else reconcile to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So let's look at this. Paul says... I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, Paul's saying, I wish y'all were single. Paul sees that in many ways as the idea, as the ideal. We'll we'll get to that in, in a couple of weeks. But Paul is saying, I wish that all were as I am. In saying so, he acknowledges that all are not like he is. That is, not everybody is unmarried. Now, we don't know exactly, um, if Paul ever had a wife, um, most scholars say he must have at some point to be part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. While it wasn't a requirement, it would have been relatively unheard of for a person to be part of that governing body and not have been married. Though it wasn't a requirement, so there's a little bit of debate. But for the most part, most Bible students have concluded that at some point Paul was married Nobody knows what happens to his wife, and there's all kinds of speculations. Maybe she's dead. Maybe she left him. Here's the thing. We don't know, so we won't speculate. Um, But Paul is, at this point, unmarried. And he says, I wish that all were like me. Unmarried. And recall, Paul is not stating that celibacy equals a higher spiritual state. That's the problem in the church. They're saying that um, to remain celibate is to achieve is is the means by which one achieves a higher spiritual state. John MacArthur puts it well: spirituality is not determined by marital status, and Paul is not going to make that point. So I wish you all were like me, but I also recognize you aren't. And, and so celibacy is a gift that is not given to all. And look what he says: he says, but because of the temptation. Um, oh, it's wrong place. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so Paul seems to allude to this idea of um, remaining unmarried as, um, uh, as, as a gift. And I've heard people say, well, that's a gift. I don't want it from God. But it is, it is Paul refers to it as a gift and he says, it is not given to everybody. I recognize not everybody has this ability. And to understand what Paul means by gift, uh, being a gift, I think it would do, we would do well to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because that's where Paul deals with the whole issue of spiritual gifts. Um, but, and I think so. First Corinthians 12 is helpful where Paul exhorts the church to recognize that differing gifts are present in the congregation. 
And what was the problem with the, the Corinthian church and the spiritual gifts? They tended to exalt certain ones above the other and use them as markers of spiritual maturity. In other words, I have this very extraordinary gift, so I am much more spiritual than you. This is the problem in the Corinthian church. And Paul is saying that, listen, I recognize that not everybody in the church um, has the exact same gift. God has gifted everybody in different ways. Now, I wish everybody had the gift of celibacy like I do, but I also recognize that you don't. And so he's exhorting the church to recognize that there are differing gifts present within the congregation. Remember something about the gifts that God gives his people. First of all, they are God-given. We do not take them on ourselves. We do not say, oh, I think I want this particular gift and I'm going to go and achieve it. And remember the purpose for which gifts are given. Gifts are given by God to benefit his people. They are for the common good. And pretty much every single reference where spiritual gifts are mentioned in the Bible, it is for the common good. You'll see it in Romans 1. You'll see it in Romans 13, I think chapter 12. Um, you'll see it in Ephesians. And uh, um, But they're given for others. In other words, they're not for me to boast of and say, oh, look how great I am or whatever. It is for the good of others. It is literally for the building up of the body of Christ. Why did God gift you in a certain way? It is that you would use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. And we'll spend a fair amount of time when we get into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We will hopefully exhaust this um, this topic. But for now, Paul is saying that singleness, not everybody has this gift. And I think chapter 12 informs us how we are to understand singleness as a gift, that it is given by God for the good of God's people. So we can learn a few things. Paul is going to make the case, especially in verse 34, and that's still a couple of weeks away, that the one who is single may be able to give more fervent service to the church and to the kingdom of God. And I think this is one of his main reasons why he extols singleness. Listen, if you're single, you're not distracted. You don't have to worry about husband or wife and kids. You are. Uh, you can be wholly devoted to the things of God. Um, think about Paul. Paul had a very dangerous calling. So he doesn't have to worry about, you know, when I'm beaten up and I come home scarred and bloody, does, does my kid see me in that condition? And when I'm thrown into prison and my wife doesn't know where I am or what's going on, how is she going to maintain, you know, uh, an income if I'm in prison? Paul realizes, it's like, listen, that's just not part of my life. I have the ability to proclaim the gospel where it has never been proclaimed. Even if bad things happen to me, I am not putting a burden on my, on my spouse or upon my kids. So he's saying, I think it is better that y'all were as I am because you can serve the kingdom in ways that married people cannot. My attention is wholly focused, focused upon the kingdom of God. And so that would be one benefit of this gift. Because remember, gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. And Paul is saying, my gift of singleness can build up the body of Christ in ways that married people cannot. The other thing we should remember is that when gifts are used to boast of greater spiritual maturity or to shun obligations to another, it is no longer a gift or it is being perverted. If I'm just using it to promote my um, spiritual worth or I'm using it to shun my obligations to another, we are misusing those gifts. And so celibacy, like other gifts, is not meritorious. It is something the it is not something the individual can take credit for. Self-mastery, in other words, is um, a, as a mark of nearness to Christ is to be repudiated. Oh, look, I have such great control over my passions. I must be a better Christian than you. 
This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying, listen, I wish you had this gift. It, I think it benefits the body of Christ much better, but I also recognize that not everybody does. So Paul then sets the example. He also knows that not all are expected to live this way. So, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God. The gift is from God. One of one kind and one of another. Now Paul begins to deal with the unmarried. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, this is what I say, it's good for you to remain single as I am. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul, I say in verse 8, this is what I'm saying to you. It is good to remain single. And remember, he is speaking to unmarried and to widows, and I would assume widowers as well. He is not speaking to the married people. So he's not saying it's better for you guys to get a divorce. That's what's going on. They're saying we should divorce because it's better to be single. No, this is to the unmarried. This is to the widows. And it is better to marry than it is to burn with passion. In other words, it is a recognition that some people are single but still have strong desires for sexual intimacy. And if that's the case, get married. Remember, the the only sphere that God has given for sexual intimacy is within marriage. Every other... I mean, we we have all kinds of crazy ideas. Anyways, Paul's saying, listen, if you need to be with another person, you can do so. Get married. And perhaps if you are unable to master those passions, perhaps singleness isn't your calling. Maybe that's a sign that, you know what, I'm not to be single. I am to be married. In fact, attempting to exercise a gift that you do not possess can be frustrating and it can lead to sin. So it's like it's the same with all all spiritual gifts. If you are trying to operate in something that God hasn't gifted you in, usually it's pretty frustrating. You're going to be very comfortable in the things that God has given you um, that joy and that gifting in. And if singleness and celibacy is not um, something that God has gifted you with, um, just get married. Remember, celibacy is not a mark of spiritual maturity. And again, recall, Paul is saying, if, if, you're, if you're desiring sexual intimacy, get married. In other words, romantic passion necessitates marriage. And that's a really strange ethic today. It was strange in Paul's day. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In Paul's day, especially in Corinth, we've we've learned it's a very hedonistic city. Um, And it's the same in in the culture in which we live. The idea then and now is that sexual passion only necessitates sex. In other words, if I'm having a passion, just there are all sorts of socially acceptable, culturally acceptable ways to fulfill that desire outside of marriage. Just go... Avail yourself of one of those and you're good. Just, and it was the same in Paul's day. There was every aberration you can think of and it was culturally acceptable. Society didn't look down on you. Just go and fulfill that. But Paul is saying, no, there is one sphere in which um, romantic passions are to be fulfilled, and that is marriage. For Paul, then, the fire of romantic passions is not to be doused by fleeting, illicit sexual encounters or by grim repression of the natural sexual desire it calls for marriage. All right, so Paul has now kind of dealt with this, uh, what about those who are unmarried? Paul is saying, I think you ought to stay single. But if those passions run strong, get married. Because marriage is not a sin, those other things are. Now Paul moves on to this issue of uh, marriage and divorce. um, Where he says, now, 
To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. So in other words, to the married, it's real simple. Stay married. But I'll elaborate a little bit more. You will note this phrase. It's going to be important for us in just a few moments where Paul makes his claim, not I, but the Lord. Paul makes a very clear distinction that what he is about to say has been explicitly taught by Jesus. Jesus has made an explicit command on this, and so he, as an apostle, is citing that explicit command. And what was Jesus' explicit command? Don't get divorced. Now, Jesus added what we call an exception clause. Paul doesn't deal with that. Remember, Paul's focus is very narrow. Jesus' exception clause was, except in the case of adultery. That would be it. That would be the exception clause. But other than that, and that doesn't necessitate one separate, it just gives biblical grounds for separation. So no divorce. Divorce is not an option to flee one's marital obligations. It is not um, an option to flee one's marital vows. And remember the context here. The context suggests that people were divorcing for spiritual reasons. In other words, I want to be, remember, any pleasure would be, um, is to be avoided. So having pleasure with my wife or my husband, that needs to be divorced. Avoided, so celibacy is the highest calling. I'm going to divorce my wife and then I'll be single and boy, will I be spirit. God will love me then. Paul is saying, don't divorce. All right. And again, the context is very specific um, on this issue. But I think the general principle also applies. Don't divorce. Paul says there are two options if you do divorce. If you do, Remain unmarried or reconcile to your spouse. Those are the two options. And this applies to both men and women. All right, so just a very brief word on this issue of marriage and divorce between men and women in Corinth. So you can see Corinth is truly a mess. And Paul is trying to bring God's wisdom and God's word into these people who have just... uh, a wrong understanding of God's good creation and especially the human body. Are we all together? The next issue that Paul addresses is those who are married, um, Christians who are married to non-Christians. Unequally yoked, I've just titled this. So this would be marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, in this situation, more likely than not, um, what happened was there would be two people in Corinth, they're pagans and they're just doing Corinthian pagan things and then the gospel comes to Corinth and one of them becomes a Christian. Now what? My spouse is not a Christian, but I am. Number one, should I separate? Number two, am I defiled from this union? And how about, what about the the product of our marriage? Are our children defiled? What about that? So Paul's going to address this issue. So it's marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. We'll see in a couple weeks, Paul will state very, very adamantly and with great certainty that Christians should marry other believers, that a believer should never marry an unbeliever. That's not the issue here. The issue is we here is that we have two unbelievers who get married and they're living pagan lives and the gospel comes into their household and one person converts. That's the issue going on here. And now what do we do about that? 
And before I get into that, let me deal with this uh, passage or the statement that Paul makes that I believe is often either utterly misunderstood, avoided, or completely perverted. To the Mary, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Okay, not I, but the Lord. You remember just previously, he said, not the Lord, but I, or not, not I, but the Lord. And here he's saying, I, not the Lord. Did I mess everybody up there? Yeah, sorry. I wish I could rewind. (laughs) To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. People have, I just inadvertently messed it up, but people have purposely messed this up. What is Paul saying? What is Paul saying when he says about what he's about to say, I'm saying this, not the Lord. Well, the first thing we want to do is let's clear the table of what Paul is not saying. Once we get the table cleared of what Paul is not saying, it'll be much easier to figure out what Paul is saying. So, first of all, what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that what he's about to talk about is his uninspired opinion on the matter. He is not saying that I'm just speaking my own personal opinion absent the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we understand that is because Scripture interprets Scripture. Paul is not just speaking his own opinion. I just got an opinion, and you can take it or leave it if you want. You can check out and not listen to what I have to say right now because it's just my own personal opinion. In just a few moments, we'll get back to the divinely inspired stuff. That you need to pay attention to. But this stuff, ah, go ahead and ignore it if you want. Paul is not saying that. And we know this for certain because Scripture interprets Scripture. And the clear teaching of Scripture is this. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. This is what Paul is about to say is the inspired Word of God and you cannot ignore it. You cannot say that, oh, Paul's just kind of saying his own thing. We do not have scriptures and then kind of a, well, now here's Paul saying his own thing. The Spirit left him for a few moments and he wrote some stuff that's just, this is just my stuff, you know. And then the Spirit comes back and inspires him. That's not what Paul's saying. So now that we've cleared the the table of what Paul is not saying, the next question then is, what is Paul saying? Well, you need to remember, Paul is speaking as an authoritative apostle. What's going on here is, especially in light of what he just previously said, in other words, Jesus did not speak explicitly about the matter he's going to talk about. But Paul is going to make the will of God known. So we have no record of Jesus speaking explicitly on the matter that Paul is about to inform us on. However, as an authoritative apostle, Paul has the the authority to speak on this matter. Because he's an apostle. See, as an apostle, Paul can speak on matters... um, He can say, thus saith the Lord. Paul understands apostolic authority. In fact, Paul claims this title for himself over and over and over again. I think I counted 15 or 16 times where Paul claims the title. I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I can probably go for 12 or 13 more times, but Paul over and over and over again claims the title, I am an apostle. Peter says, I am an apostle. This is an authoritative title, and it gives Paul the, the um, I guess, the right to speak. In fact, what the early church, what did they 
give themselves to. The very first thing, Acts 2.42, what did the early church give themselves to as their priority? The apostles' teaching. So Paul is speaking as an apostle, and he has the authority to declare, thus saith the Lord. So we might let me just clarify a few things. What is an apostle? Glad you asked. Christians do not make up this word. This is not some new word that Christians just came up with to give a title and a heading to those who were the, the head of the church. Apostles were well known in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, this word apostolos was used of one who was commissioned to speak to others on behalf of the emperor. So it would be one who was sent out by the emperor to speak on his behalf to others. Hence, the words of the apostle, or the words of the apostolos, were the words of the emperor. If an apostle was sent from an emperor to a city and he declared certain things, he is speaking the very words of the emperor. To disregard the words of the apostolos was to disregard the words of the emperor as if he were, if, as though the emperor were speaking face to face. So, an apostolos was sent, was sent by an emperor to speak to the people and to speak the words of the emperor. And so the apostolos was very concerned or very precise to not add anything to the words of the emperor nor to take away from the words of the emperor because these are not his words. These are the words of the emperor. I have no right to add to the words and I have no right to take away from them. I cannot distort the message in any way. That's how the word is understood in the ancient Near East. In the New Covenant then, apostles were those commissioned to speak on behalf of the great emperor Jesus Christ. They were ones who were sent with a message from their king and they had the right to speak and they had the right to say, these are the words of the king. I will not distort them. I will not add to them. I will not subtract to them. I have no right, but these are the words of the emperor. He has sent me to declare these things. So Paul is an apostle and he is speaking the very words of the emperor. So let me just be clear. There are no apostles today. Let me repeat that. There are no apostles today. Nobody can say, thus saith the Lord. I know there's a whole group called the New Apostolic Reformation. We abominate that. They are a heretical group. There are no apostles today because nobody can say, thus saith the Lord. There is no new scripture. What we have in the Bible is not only authoritative, it is sufficient. It is done. There are no apostles. Let me repeat that. I know because there are people who say, well, I'm an apostle. No, you aren't. Because you do not say, thus saith the Lord. Scripture is closed. It is sufficient. We need nothing else. We don't need a word from an apostle. Why? Because God's word is sufficient. So, no apostle today. Nobody can say, thus saith the Lord. If they say they claim the title of apostle, um, they misunderstand completely. God's word. And I know that you can actually buy your apostleship. And I always tell this story that we had very early on when Simone and I first um, were coming here. And, and when I was first the pastor, probably within a year, we had one of the apostles. He was the apostle of South America. Um, and so he has been given this title. I don't know by who, but it's not by Jesus Christ. It is by some other apostle not by Jesus Christ, and he came and he was scoping us out, and I think he was kind of making a play as to whether or not we would um, sit under that apostolic authority. No, because there are no apostles. You are not one. So, 
MacArthur, I think, states this also very well. He says, Jesus had not given any previous revelation on this subject, but Paul is now setting it forth. This is what he means by I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't speak explicitly about this. I will set forth the divine word on this matter. That's what he's saying. And what does he say? Don't divorce. If an unbelieving spouse is content to remain with you, then do not seek separation. All right. Now, this can create a, a weird environment because now we, within a household we have differing worldviews um, and that might produce strife in the marriage, but that strife is not grounds for divorce. Likewise, union with an unbelieving spouse does not defile you, nor does it defile your children. This is what Paul is going to say. In fact, he goes on and talks about this issue of um, how one spouse is made holy by another. And let me admit at the outset, this is a very difficult passage of text, and it's one that Bible students and commentators are all over the place on. I'm going to give you um, what I think best encapsulate what Paul is talking about, and I'm speaking as a pastor, not an apostle. (laughs) I am not an apostle. Once again, what does it mean by, um, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Well, once again, let's use a similar method, and let's clear off the table what is not being meant. Here's what's not being meant. Paul is not saying that you are saved by proxy. In other words, you can be saved because your spouse is saved. Paul is not saying that. How do we know that? Because the rest of Scripture denies that explicitly. One of the things we do when we understand Scripture or when we interpret Scripture is we interpret the unclear passages through the clear passages. The clear passages is that nobody is saved because of their relationship to somebody else. All right? That's clear. So Paul can't be saying that a spouse gets saved because, or a spouse is saved because their wife or their husband is. Or that kids are saved because their parents are. Your relationship to one, to another person does not make you a child of God. So we are not saved by the belief of another. I think we can probably all uh, agree to that. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian because my wife's a Christian, or I'm a Christian because my dad's a Christian, or because my uncle's a pastor. I hear that all the time. Well, I know because I, my uncle's a pastor. Yeah, but what about you? We're not saved by proxy. But I think a way to uh, to make sense of this very challenging passages that the believing spouse will share in the blessings that God gives to his children. I think that's the general idea. Holiness is being used in, in, in a term, not in the sense of being saved, but by being set apart. The believing spouse, I'm sorry, the unbelieving spouse will share in the blessings that God gives to his children. Maybe an illustration for this is we would find this um, in... Um, in the person of Abraham. Abraham, I think, helps us understand what Paul is dealing with here. And um, I'll give credit where credit is due. Uh, it was a while back, but Samuel was teaching in the uh, book of Genesis, and when we were in Abraham, this just jumped out at me, and it just became, it, it, he just made it really, really clear. And that is, those who were allied with Abraham, those who were friends of Abraham, shared in the blessings of Abraham. It did not mean that they became members of the covenant community. It just meant the blessings of Abraham. If you were a friend of Abraham, the blessings of Abraham, the favor of God toward Abraham flowed out to you. And I think that's the same thing that's going on here, that a believing spouse in the household, that benefit flows to the rest of the household. So those who allied themselves with Abraham received the divine favor that initially flowed to Abraham. Remember, James says that Abraham was a friend of God and friends of Abraham shared in the blessings. It, they were not converted, they 
So you see that these people with Abraham, it's not like, well, they were pagans, but they didn't become unpagan because of their relationship with Abraham. They remained pagan, but the blessings of Abraham, the favor that God showed to Abraham flowed to them as well because they were friends of Abraham. And I think that's the same idea that's going on in the households, that a believing spouse in the household, the blessings of God that flows to that um, that. Um, that man or that woman ends up um, spreading to the rest of the household. We might call this common grace, that God's grace um, even uh, falls upon unbelieving people. And in this case, it falls on the unbelieving spouse and children because there is um, a child of the king living in that household. I hope that makes some sense. I, I think that's the best way to understand this. And then, um, people m- might respond, okay, so if that's true, then what about our children? I mean, if we have this, if, if we have this union and we produce children, then what about them? Are they defiled? And Paul is, I think Paul is saying, no, just the opposite. Um, they're not defiled. Um, a spouse or a child is not defiled by union with an unbeliever. Paul says, in fact, just the opposite happens. In fact, salvation may happen. So how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, am I defiled because I'm living in a household with an unbeliever? And what about my children? Paul says, no, here's just the opposite. May happen. What may happen is that by your good behavior and your godly example, your unbelieving husband, your unbelieving wife, or your unbelieving children may come to know Christ. And maybe a good historical um, illustration is uh, by a woman by the name of Monica. Um, She lived in the 4th and 5th century. She had a very, very famous son, very famous son. Her son's name was Augustine, probably the greatest, one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived. Monica was a Christian and a very godly woman. Augustine, just the opposite. Augustine was known for his um, very loose lifestyle. Um, He lived it up. He enjoyed everything that the world had to offer in abundance. And he loved it. He even talks about it. He says, yeah, one time I, I, I stole some apples from a farmer or from an orchard. It's not because I was hungry or needed the apples. I just like to steal. I just like to feel. This, this, is, this is Augustine in his pre-conversion days. Monica, his mom, was a godly woman. Oh, the rest of Monica's family, her husband, a relatively cruel man, was not a believer, worshipped the pagan gods, pro- more likely than not abused her, I don't know how severely, um, but he was not a kind man. Oh, and also, don't forget, her mother-in-law who lived with them. So, this is Monica. Augustine eventually comes to know Christ and he credits his mom's godly behavior and her prayers as one of the key reasons for his conversion to Christ. It is my mom. If it weren't for my mom, I would probably still be lost. Oh, and by the way, her husband repented and called upon the name of the Lord and was saved. What about his mother-in-law? Oh yeah, her too. Monica's family. And now, this is not some promise. Paul is not making the promise. We don't learn from history that this is a guarantee that if you serve Christ, your whole family is going to know, come to know Christ. Paul's just saying, how do you know? Live godly. Be, if you want an imperative, be a Monica. Live a godly life. Live out the, the, the light that Christ has given you. And who knows? 
God may have mercy on your family. Already, because you're in that household, the blessings of God are, 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 are flowing in that household. And who knows? Who knows? That by your godly behavior, the rest of your family may come to salvation. It's happened before. Not just in the life of Monica and Augustine, but also in the life of many, many other families. So let me conclude with a few things. The first one is this. There's probably not a single person in this church, and there probably will not be a single person who listens to this um, online who has not been affected by divorce. Either we have divorced or been divorced, initiated a divorce, um, our parents have been divorced, family members have. Let me... And the, the clear teaching of Scripture is don't divorce. But let me also remind you that even though it is forbidden by Christ, it is not unforgivable. So I don't want you to go out of here going, oh, what about me? What about you? Are you a follower of Christ? Christ has forgiven everything. Everything. And so even if you were the instigator of an ungodly separation and divorce and you were the catalyst behind it, you drove it, then you gouged your spouse in the divorce settlement, even that, God forgives. There is, you are not outside of the grace of God. So let's remember that. Let us also um, remember our unmarried brothers and sisters. We have people in the church who are not married, whether they're not married yet or they have been widowed or their, their spouse has perished. Let's remember our unmarried brothers and sisters. It's easy in some churches, you know, married people get to mar- together with married people and sometimes we invite them over to, to parties and stuff and we, and, and we forget that there are people um, at holidays and on the weekends. And you know what? Don't forget the people who do not have a spouse. Some, that may be their, their gift. They'll remain celibate the rest of their lives. But still, let's remember them. They're, they're not outcasts. And I think just as in the days of Paul, an unmarried person was considered a kind of an outcast, I think in many ways that can happen today as well. Let's not forget our unmarried brothers and sisters and include them. Not to say, well, we're a young family and we want to get together with a whole bunch of other young families. It's like, include those who are not married. Another conclusion or another application point perhaps is that is, is in regards to the dangers of hyper-spirituality. I don't know if that's a real word or if I just made it up, but <laughs> hyper-spirituality. And that is... <clears throat> Everybody who is just like me is really spiritual and everybody else is somewhere on a little bit lower level. Right? And we tend to do that. It's like, well, I have these giftings and I have these abilities and if only you were as gifted as I am in this particular area. Meanwhile, they're gifted in other areas. But nope, this is the the standard by which we gauge all spiritual maturity. I'm the standard or my gifting or my abilities or the things that, that I do. And that's what's going on in Corinth. We live free and we just engage in whatever debauchery we want. Christ must love us. And if you don't agree with us, then, then others are like, no, 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 no. You need to deny all of that. Then you're really spiritual. And of course, both of these were sin. Paul is, when Paul gets to the whole issue of spiritual gifts, he's like, he's like, listen, some of you are gifted in this way and some of you are gifted in that way. And none of you ha- are the gauge by which we measure your spiritual walk. And sometimes we, we do that. Maybe the, uh, the little saying, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And in the realm of spiritual gifts, I guess if you're, Gifted to teach, everybody's a student. 
the person suffering who needs an arm put around them does not need a treatise on or a biblical theology of suffering. They need someone to weep with them. They don't need a lesson. There may come a day they need a lesson. But at that moment, they need someone to sit with them and weep with them. God has gifted his church with people of differing gifts, and he has gifted this church with people of differing gifts. There are certain things I think I'm, I do fairly well at and other things I don't, but praise God, God has gifted this church with those people. That's the body. That doesn't mean that you're more or less spiritual or that you're closer to God or further from God. It means that God has blessed you in certain areas, and we gather together, and the body of Christ is complete because he has gifted us all in different ways. And when we get to chapter 12, if if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? All right? I hope that makes some sense. And then finally, a godly example in our homes honors God and may bring salvation to those who are currently rebelling. So what a great place, what a great mission field, our homes. To be faithful to the gospel, to withstand and be long-suffering, and to be prayerful. Um, and who knows? Who knows what God may, God may have mercy and bring to salvation those in your household. We can pray. God is able to do much more and much more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. So Lord, this, this morning we come before you and we thank you. We thank you that you have blessed us. We thank you for your word, Lord God. I pray that we would not be proud and think that somehow my abilities are the gauge and the measure by which we measure all people's Christianity. I pray that we would put aside whatever sin, whatever things entangle us. I pray, Lord God, that we would honor you in the things that we say and the things we do. And as we so often quote, that we would, that our lights would so shine before men that they would see our good good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. So be merciful to us this day. In Christ's name, amen.